black ball. Black 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 What is up, everybody? My name is James D. Fiore, and this is Blackballed. If you have been following the news, uh, especially when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, you probably saw something that was a little confusing uh, for you at the time that it came out, and you probably were wondering what the heck is going on with, uh, with our politics. There was a moment last year where... Are where the where the American president Joe Biden said something that a lot of people were a little bit confused over, and then something happened that sort of brought that into fruition. I'm going to play that clip now, and I'm going to come back and we're going to welcome our guests to the show. Diplomacy is the very best way forward for all sides. We both agree, including best for Russia in our view, and we have made it very clear we're ready to continue talks in good faith with Russia. Germany has also been a leader in pushing de-escalation of tensions and encouraging dialogue through the Normandy format. If, uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine again, then uh, there, will be, uh, we, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. There will no longer be a Nord Stream tube, and we will bring an end to it. And then our guest today wrote this, how America took out the Nord Stream pipeline. We would like to talk to him. It has been uh, a sort of harrowing year so far, as far as information goes. Legacy media outlets don't seem to want to spend a lot of time on this story, but other international media outlets definitely are. And the author of that piece, uh, legendary Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Seymour Hirsch is here. Seymour, how are you, sir? Um, Older and dumber. (laughs) You're with us audio only because, as usual, I have problems with my tech software. You're absolutely right when we said on the phone that I should probably get uh, my act in order. So I appreciate that. Um, I wanted to also just sort of like remind our listeners of who you are and what you've done. Uh, we're from Canada. Many people have heard of you uh, up here that are in journalism and that follow the news. But some of my audience might not know that you were the person who essentially um, broke the story of the My Lai massacre. I believe that story, Seymour Hirsch, um, in 50. 50- it will be it's the 55th year 55th anniversary this year is that right uh, uh let's see it was 90 the anniversary was in 60 yeah you're right it was uh, the massacre took place in march of 68 and this would be 55 years which means that i'm very old <laughs> well, you're still doing your thing. I, I I appreciate the work that you do for a bunch of reasons. One is that you seem to buck the establishment no matter where you are. Um, you did the My Line Massacre thing. That led to the church committee hearings. Um, you also broke the story about the killing of Osama bin Laden. Every time you break a new story, the government tells everyone that you're a nutcase, and they never actually do anything to contradict the stories that you put out. Well... I can't you know, I, I'm sure that's generally true, but not maybe not in every case, because, you know, I spent years writing a lot of stories for the, you know, I was always a straight press guy. Uh, uh, before I did Eli, 
I'd been a police reporter in Chicago. I'd worked for the Associated Press in Chicago. And then in, in Washington, I was sent to cover the Pentagon, which I guess was a mistake for them because by in 65 and 66, the war was expanding. And uh, the more I learned about it, and I had been following it, of course, um, uh, just as a kid all along, uh, a war, you know, we're all interested in war. And um, uh, I learned on OJT, on the job, I began to talk, you know, uh, um, um, I was in the army. I had to do. I had to go in the army. Um, I went to law school and I hated it and dropped out. And I had to get in to the army to to, uh, uh, to do my time. So I knew the mil- I knew the military a little bit, black humor and all that stuff. I began to talk to guys who were officers who assigned to the Pentagon. And those guys, the guys assigned as captains and majors to the Pentagon, are the comers. They're the guys they expect to be the generals of the future. But these guys, you began once you started talking to them, you began to see it was mass murder out there. It was just going nuts. It was just you were just basically what the army wanted to do was kill gooks. Gooks was the word we use, pejorative word we use. We always have pejorative words for our enemy in in uh, Iraq. It was uh, Haji, Hajis. Yeah. Don't ask me why, but you know that um, Krauts. I remember Krauts. What? You know? Krauts from Nips, World War II. Yeah. Nips, remember Nips in World War II? Anyway. Oh, gosh, yeah. So um, so I ended up doing a lot of stuff there and got in trouble with management. You know, the, the McNamara was then Secretary of Defense, and he would call up the head of the AP and yell about me. And so I moved on, and um, I did the Milai story as a freelance writer. And I'll tell you what really scared me about mm. my profession. I've been a reporter for 10 years. I When I was in Chicago... As a crime reporter, I understood a couple rules. You could do anything you want. You could park your car anywhere as long as you had a press sticker. The cops would never give you a ticket. They wouldn't stop you from driving with no license, no driving. There were 30 people in your car and booze. If you had press license, you were free. As long as you didn't write about police corruption, the cops who were you know, investigating yeah. um, um, uh, a break-in and then took more stuff. And as long as you didn't mess with the mob, the the, uh, the we're not... The Giancana mob controlled uh, a lot of Chicago. I'm sorry, my phone. I forgot to turn it off. That's okay. That's uh, okay. Just, just turn it off. And um, it rings a lot. <laughs> That's all right. I imagine it does. Oh, it does. It's yeah. crazy. And I'm still writing stuff. But anyway, the point is in G- in Chicago in the, on the Rush Street, the Play Street, the street where all the you know where all the nightclubs were and all that stuff. If you if some guy was found in the in the gutter with 14 bullet holes in him because of some mob fight and the local police station reported it as a traffic accident, you didn't mess with it. It was a tyranny. So I learned an awful lot there on the street about censorship, self-censorship. I stayed in, went in the army, came out, got jobs, got to the AP. Then I got um, I did the Milai story, and by that time I I found a lieutenant who was accused of everything. They always had a bad apple. And the, the military can be terrific when it comes to covering up as bright as you want to make it to covering up something that's really deadly. But I couldn't get it published for a long time, publish it with a little anti-war news agency, and somehow it just hooked. I did five stories in five weeks. And eventually, the CBS Walter Cronkite picked up stuff, and that helped. There's no Walter Cronkite in television news today. You know, he was a CBS, the, star, yeah. the old man. And... Uh, <laughs> I remember once I used to play tennis with my oldest kid, with my oldest kid downtown in, in New York when we lived in New York, and Cronkite had a court right next to me, and and one day, and he had white hair, and I introduced my eight-year-old kid to him one day, and I said, "This is a friend of mine, 
Ron Cog, and he looked at this guy full of white hair and he said, are you a watchmaker? Because I had all these children's stories about watchmakers that look very real. Ron took my stories and made them real. And, uh, and fame, fortune, and glory. I wrote, you know, you saw the book I wrote. Mm-hmm. So I go on and I get to the New York Times. I get to the New Yorker first and then to the New York Times where I was told to make whoopee about the war, which I did. And then I get on to the New Yorker and then, you know, and, and, and I'm doing all these stories. And, <laughs> and then I guess with Obama, it began to change. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, the liberal New York press I worked for, you know, uh, wasn't so interested in Obama stories. This, the book you saw was a. Um, I, I ended up uh, being leaving the New Yorker and writing a lot for the London Review of Books, where I did. The whole point of the 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 story about Bin Laden was that Obama uh, didn't. You know, we did kill him, and Obama did authorize the hit. It was just a basic murder. Seals flew in somewhere. The, uh, the Pakistani government obviously made it easy for us. And they went in and killed the guy, shot him up and threw his body out over uh, over the Hindukush mountains. And they were uh, our troops were coming out of Pac- out of uh, Afghanistan into Pakistan anyway. But the White House, of course, maxed it because the president, you know, he's an African-American guy running for reelection. This was in May of 2011. The election was the election was the next year. They maxed it out. And so I began to write about the lies they were telling. And got nowhere with that until I had I had a, I had to end up in London doing it, and then I did this book because um, uh, I wanted to do the book. I wanted to. to we, we don't have to be behold. Look, Obama's a charming, bright guy, probably the brightest brightest president we had since Lincoln. Uh, Kennedy was bright enough, was bright enough too, but Lincoln was the star. And Obama's really bright, uh, but you know he didn't close Guantanamo. He didn't tell the truth about killing Osama bin Laden, you know. I, and anyway, so it turns out there's a quadruple standard employee, and we're seeing it right now. We've got a Democratic president. The, the, the newspaper I worked for for seven, eight years and did nothing but prize-winning stories with anonymous sources hasn't touched the story I wrote. This is I wrote it for Substack, which is a I'm basically an independent publisher on it. Yeah, you got a million, I think you got a million hits in the first couple of days or something oh, on no, that story. The first day, you know, it was just like, it was like mm. bananas. Wow. And and so when, I just want to circle back for one second, because it, the church committee talked about all of these things. It was supposed to be something that shone the light on um, not just intelligence failures, but but illegal activity of intelligence agencies. And when you um, and and when the church committee happened, they talked about things like Operation Mockingbird, which is when the CIA would infiltrate media organizations. But what's weird is that at the, the aftermath of that, as you just sort of pointed out, is that the 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 media became entrenched in these camps um, for Democrats or Republicans and sort of dropped their principles when it came to the actual stories. Like I saw when MSNBC when Trump got elected, MSNBC would have on the same intelligence directors from the NSA and CIA that they were saying six months prior should go to jail. <laughs> that may be, right? I, I'm not going to hold you to that sentence. I'm not sure. But if you're talking about the clapper idea, people like the that, idea, there's no question that former uh, Brennan who was investigated pretty thoroughly and pretty lucky not to be in more trouble by a, an outside prosecutor. Uh, there was a prosecutor, prosecutor named when Trump was elected. Uh, to look at the allegations that uh, the CIA and the White House, after his election, worked against him, uh, wiretapped him, et cetera. And, uh, of course, 
nothing uh, nothing yet has happened because Brennan, as a former CIA director, who was also very close to Obama, he was in he was chief of uh, counterterrorism in, in the White, counterterrorism in the White House for Obama, and a Brennan. Um, uh, I don't know what he did to escape prosecution, but he, he, you know, you can't prosecute a former CIA director. They just have too many things they could talk about that, you know, that uh, too many, op- too many people in the field that can get hurt. But the, the point is, I think uh, the polarization did begin early um, uh, of the press. But uh, when, when I was there in the 70s, the New York Times was very straight. We, 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 we didn't tilt as much. And now... The media, I think Trump a- a- accelerated this because he was reviled, just like Putin is reviled. And uh, I must say that Putin did start a war for which you can never forgive him. But he sure had he sure had reason to. I still think it, doing it is a bad thing. But yeah, people don't like to talk about that. I I, I think I heard you talk about that on uh, when you were with Russell Brand a couple of days ago, and and I was. What I found really interesting, that was a great discussion, by the way. I thought it was both lighthearted and informative. I thought it was great. But you mentioned something that I thought was interesting um, when you were like, uh, oh, you can't say that, Russell Brand. We have been, I haven't seen a war like this before where we have been told that you you must, first of all, take one side. And it's kind of easy to not take Russia's side because, as you just said, they did invade. But then we're not allowed to talk about the nuances where it's like, were was nato infringing and have they been for the last 20 years closer and closer and and you know what should russia do to to sort of combat that infringement and people are like what are you talking about you can't say that and 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 why why is that a new phenomenon what what is so interesting about that war that we're not allowed to criticize ukraine at all um i i I, biden has made a campaign against russia he's made it personal he's made it personal against putin and, um, and and that works in a way. Um, you know, uh, uh, there's been not one. Uh, um, the liberal, my old newspaper, has not written a story about the pipeline stuff. And as you, as you, in your intro, what, what just to be, just to set the table a little bit. Biden mm-hmm. said that in February, two or three weeks before Russia invaded, and the, right. the reason he said that. And this is what the initial story I wrote. I wrote a story a couple of weeks ago in Substack. The one you mentioned it was a long story. I've been doing shorter stuff since, but that was a long story that laid out that laid out. That's the piece, yes. That laid out the uh, and it's free. You just have to go to you don't have to buy anything. Just go to Substack and and uh, it's just there and it's all over the internet anyway. You can copy it down. Uh, but but it's just Biden made that threat because at some point last fall we're talking about a year ago. Before Christmas, uh, about let's see, it's 14 months ago. Before in 2021, when Russia looked like it was going, he asked the intelligence community through his aides to give me some options on how to stop Russia. And there were secret meetings. And in the piece I did, I I wrote about those meetings up to a point. I I don't want to get you know. There's always a source issue where you have to protect people. But the question they ask is, you know, do you want something reversible or irreversible? That's literally the language. Reversal would be would be more sanctions, uh, closing McDonald's faster, you know, that, all of that stuff we did um, to uh, try and convince Russia not to go to war. Uh, meanwhile, as you said, we 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 expanded NATO from the original West European 19 countries to I don't know how many. 30, 40, you know, um, uh, Macedonia. <laughs> I don't know where we are. Yeah. 
Italy is now, it was all the West Europe, NATO, NATO was designed in 49 to protect West Germany. Anyway, big deal, West Europe and particularly Germany. So, but what happened is um, uh, that he asked for options and kinetic options and irreversible. And obviously the one came take out the pipeline and a, a very high level secret group was established to take a look at the options. The pipelines were run 750 miles all the way down the Baltic Sea from Russia into where the Russians have incredible volumes of natural gas. And the pipelines, one was started in 2011, opened up, and the other one, the Nord Stream 2, was just completed, but Germany had sanctioned it. They weren't operational. They were, just, they were packed with gas, but it wasn't being delivered. And gas going to Germany, Russia, Russia's been supplying cheap gas to Germany more than they can use, and they're an industrial powerhouse. They have the largest chemical factory in the world, Mercedes and, you know, BMWs. They're just now they're in trouble because they don't get the gas and the gas costs more. It's going to be very deleterious. Blowing up the pipelines basically told Europe and NATO, as far as, far as I can tell, is that Biden said, well, we we Americans, we, you know, we took care of you long enough. We want we want you not to have any Russian gas. Because if you open up the Russian gas, you might not support us in Ukraine. He's dead set on Ukraine. He went there. He just had a meeting. He was in Kiev what, today or yesterday. You know, he just flew yep. there um, and support a, a war that he will not win. I'm telling you, he will not win that war. But going back to the story, when the community, to the group, the, the people that did the study, they included guys who did deep sea binding and all that stuff. And a lot of old pros at running a covert operation. At some time in early mid-January, they said to the White House, okay, we think we can do it. We've done a study and, you know, we got to look at it. And so what happens in most governments, you know, in American governments, that's the biggest secret of all. Yeah. But about a week or two after that, the Undersecretary for State, Victoria Newland, whose husband is a, 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 a guy named Kagan, is a famous neocon, and she's, she is very conservative. She has a news. She's asked a question about Russia going in, and she said, "If they do, we will stop Nord Stream, the new Nord Stream, Nord Stream Two, by all and any means, right? By any means." She didn't have mm -hmm. to add that. And then two weeks later, Biden made that comment you made in a news conference when the German um, Chancellor, Mr. Schultz, standing right there, yeah, standing right there, and he said, "The question was, he said we could stop it." And a reporter asked him, "The tape of it is really interesting." Well. How can you get it done? He said, believe me, we know how to do it and we will do it if they go in. No journalist in talking to him, even after the incident took place, has asked the White House about that question. That's exactly that's ex that's exactly what people like me get so frustrated. I'm sure people like you as well. The the it almost felt like and I'm not trying to, you know, this isn't ageism, but, you know, Biden has a. Uh, the, the right like to poke fun at the fact that he might have senior moments here and there. That felt like one. It's like, why is he saying that out loud? I feel like his aides were behind the scenes going, stop it. <laughs> stop talking. Well, there's, no, there's, no question that, there's no question that the people involved couldn't believe it. But, you know, um, you know so it goes. I mean, yeah, you, know, I'm, you know, I'm older than him. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to nail him on the basis of age. My problem with Biden is, is that he seems to... He wants to mix it up with uh, Putin. And yeah, he, wants, I, I, he, he really I, wants to duke it out, and that's that's so 
wrong and so and it's it so follows the pattern of almost every other american president with probably the nah, exception of trump now you're getting into it who are the yeah. famous presidents who are the presidents that are, we love the most lincoln won the civil war uh yeah. roosevelt won world war ii i mean these are all people that were serious good things we, we haven't lost the you know we keep on talking about in america we we keep on talking about containment of russia right yeah well let's see we lost Vietnam. It fell. Saigon fell in 1975, and I guess I don't know April, May, and in the next three weeks, two other major South Asian capitals fell: uh, Cambodia fell and Laos fell. So that's right. Containment failed totally. The whole purpose of us going into Vietnam was to contain the Red Menace. So everything fell, and what happened? Nada. Nothing. Nothing happened. That's what happened. Nothing. What? Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. What is it that we're trying to accomplish? Like, before you before you answer that, actually, I, I learned something else on your interview with uh, with Russell Brand. I'm going to play this clip, and when we come back, I think you'll have a lot to say about it. Do you think Germany's been as aggressive as it should be? I'm quite an admirer of Chancellor Merkel, and um, I heard her statement when she was with President Obama in Washington. I thought it was a very good statement. Uh, but now we need to have uh, tougher sanctions, and I'm afraid at some point this is going to probably have to invo involve oil and gas. Uh, the Russian economy is vulnerable. 80% of Russian exports are in oil, gas, and minerals. Uh, people say, well, the Europeans will run out of energy. Well, the Russians will run out of cash before the Europeans run out of energy. And I understand that it's uncomfortable uh, to have an effect on business ties in this way. Uh, but this is one of the few instruments that we have. To, over the long run, you simply want to change the structure of energy dependence. You want to depend more on the North American energy platform, the tremendous bounty of oil and gas that we're finding in North America. You want to have pipelines that don't go through Ukraine and Russia. Uh, for years, we've tried to get the Europeans to be interested in different pipeline routes. It's time to do that. And so some of this is simply acting and acting. Did she just give away the motive um, that Biden was operating under when he uh, allegedly bombed the pipeline? Um, it's been going on since the Kennedy years. We mm. believe, you know, we're cold warriors. We believe uh, Russia with its pipelines and its large amounts of gas has been weaponizing gas and oil, weaponizing it to make their case for, as a world power and for their point of view. And so that's been an anathema to us. We're still fighting, you know, we're still fighting containment. Even though when we lost it all in South Asia, nothing happened the next day. You know, everybody it just, it just may be 
I've been actually looking at this for a couple of years in COVID, while in COVID. Um, everything sort of stopped in COVID. And so I, I was doing a documentary. It's been amazing to go back and read some of the... Anyway, I, the, the bottom line is that uh, we've been chasing a ghost, I think, since the end of World War II. You know, the, you know democracy and, and plural, pluralism works. Anyway, the problem now is the reason that there's so much angst about this, what I wrote, and so much attention, is because Biden, by blowing up the pipelines in the in the fall of, of last fall, in late September, um, basically was saying to Germany, you know, you're no longer going to have a choice. You know, if you don't support us, you're not, you know, you're not, you know, you, the fear was he would go back and, and drop the sanctions on the new pipeline and get the gas and get the economy booming again. And particularly with the winter coming on, they happen to have a mild winter. So Germany escaped, but, but it, there's going to be an, a nasty winter next year. The, it's not going to happen two years in a row. And so Western Europe and Germany now, and this is one of the reasons the story I did has so much uh, uh, bounce in in, the, in Europe, uh, they're going to have to start rethinking. It's, it's always been a dependence on America and NATO. They're going to have to say, you know, this guy, this guy just sold them down the river for a war he can't win in the Ukraine with a bunch of guys that are totally corrupt. And yeah, what, it, what's, can his you ex- what's his goal? His goal is to poke the bear, the big Russian bear in the eye. And meanwhile, mm-hmm. he's also poking him in the eye in, in, uh, in China. And very aggressive stuff. And I don't, I can't, and the only thing I can figure out is he thinks this is a political way to get renominated, because in, in a crisis we always support our president in America. I mean, you, you know, know that happened in Canada. He's knocking down balloons and weather stations. You know what? It's all yeah. <laughs> we have that. Uh, uh, just because you said it, just a quick um, aside. You ha- you you sort of broke news a little bit um, as far as we're concerned up here about the uh, about the UFO slash balloon situation. You saying that one of the balloons that got shot, I don't, I don't know if it was the one over the Yukon, was actually from um, the University of Alaska's Fairbanks yeah. weather station? I didn't write it. There's a difference between what somebody asked I'm sorry, me. you said it. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'm saying it is different. What happened is I asked somebody. I know I've been here. I'm long of tooth. And believe it or not, mm-hmm. um, uh, I've been writing CIA stories about going into Chile, CIA stories spying on Americans, CIA trying to dig up pipe, uh, uh, submarines, uh, stuff under the... I've been writing stories without naming sources for years, but I have sources. And I've never put anybody in jail or got them fired because I, I'll take the heat for not naming people. There's, the attack mm-hmm. on me usually on this story is, oh, you seem to have only one source. And I don't have... Uh, is it also because you don't have an editor, though? That that Because you know, normally if you work at the New Yorker or the New York Times, the editor's privy to sources, I think. Uh, and uh, is this not... Not in, all the time. In both places they were, but the editor I have here certainly knows. I mean, I, I've I've hired a terrific. Now I'm I'm. It's my own. I have an LLC, which is a corporation. I have all the stuff I never had, mm. and I've hired somebody. Uh, I have a lawyer son who sort of pushes me around. You know how it is, with kids. Yeah. And um, um, so uh, I, I've hired. I have hired a fact a wonderful editor, and I've also somebody who worked with me at the London Review when I wrote a lot of tough stories. And also a former New York New Yorker magazine fact checker, who was okay. and who they all know the people I talked to. There's a total trust of situation. But having said that, fact checking only goes as far as to say that what the person I'm writing about 
quoting the person said he has actually said it doesn't mean what he says is true <laughs> you know so there's a it's not the end and be all to everything it's up to me to make sure it's true but having said that um uh we're we have a real dilemma in this country because we we really don't have the you know the, the speaking of not investigating here i'm writing a story saying we blew up you know about two, how many billion dollars worth of uh, pipeline and and future profits and all incredible costs and if if they the white house can never acknowledge that they did it because there's incredible uh, criminal not criminal necessarily but uh, um, financial uh, uh, liability i mean we're talking about uh, with scores of billions they've cost they've cost the the the, the pipelines were run not directly by Russia. 51% of them, of the first one anyway, was owned by Grasspom, which is a, a Russian big oil gas company full of uh, oligarchs, and they kicked back money into the treasury for sure. Russia, one year, the treasury made $45 million, billion dollars on the oil, hmm. on the gas. Um, but let me just finish the yeah. thought, because, uh, but 49% of, of the owners of the pipeline are Western European private entities who sell the gas that they have, their, their half, downstream. They sell it to gas, little gas providers. I'm sure they're all over Canada. And anyway, while I got you, I, I, what's wrong with my soccer, my hockey team here? You know, the, Which, they <laughs> the capital? They just it's probably gonna... because Ovechkin still likes Putin, right? And so they oh, don't no. want him to he, win? He missed three or four games and they, you know, they just collapsed. Yeah. One guy controls the team. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, no, listen, he's a Russian. What do you want him to say? You want him to... You want him to, 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 to I don't think there's anything wrong with, with, with what Ovechkin says. I, I think oh, we need to stop. I, I hate it. I, 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 hate, I hate it when critics are really tough on, 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 on ancillary personalities right. where they're like, where they want to like uh, throw Ovechkin under the bus because he happens to be a patriot for his country. Like, you're not supposed to have to demand... I think, I yeah. think he was connected with the international their national hockey team you know but anyway yeah I, I i agree with you totally i agree it's just insane that, that what's the name of that quarterback that uh, bent his knee that never got for the 49ers oh anyway i'm yeah. not a football guy but yeah no i hear you um yeah, well you guys are all you're all hockey guys <laughs> yeah we are <laughs> where are hockey, you but where are you in I, I'm in a little town called Killaloo, which is where my wife grew up. It's in the middle of the forest near Algonquin Park in Ontario, about four hours north of Toronto. But I'm from Toronto. Toronto, by the way, the, some of the best food in the world. Oh, yeah. The oh, ethnic dude. food there. It's a great ethnic town. It has all these Slavs and Poles. Oh, the hole-in-the-wall peasant food of any all, corner uh, of the earth. It's amazing. In, in the old days, when I used to go to South Asia, the best food before Singapore begot such, became such a colossus there were back alleys in Singapore where guys were just, you know, and same in, in Hanoi. Uh, not so more any Saigon's not very sophisticated. In Hanoi, there were back there were back little kitchen, home kitchens where you just, yeah. the mama sat there and, you know, the rats are running around in the kitchen and the daddy's doing the dishes and the son's serving you. You know, right. they, oh, it's the best food in the world. Is there a, yeah, it, can I just ask? I, just... Uh, I only got about 10 more minutes with you, buddy. I got okay. To, I got to go back to work. Okay, um, I just want to, well, then I'll, I'll try to do a little bit of rapid fire then. One thing I wanted to know, because you mentioned it earlier, is that after the fall of Saigon, it was like Indonesia and Laos, I think, that went after no, that. No, that was South, no, it was South Asia. It was uh, Cambodia and Laos are two border countries. 
Oh, right. Okay. Um, and the, cam, uh, the, 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 the dirty rotten commies took Saigon. If you remember the scenes of the Americans flying, flying away from the, the from helicopters, the, uh, yeah. see, uh, the roof of the embassy and yep. Vietnamese trying to come in and be kicked off, be, get out. They were so scared of the communists for right, good reasons. The communists, the North Vietnamese, uh, they're tough. They put a lot of people in re-education camps for years. But Saigon now and Hanoi now, I was back a couple of years ago, four or five years ago, is a corporate enterprise. You walk out of, I, I, when I was, I was there during the war in 72, when there was American bombing and stuff like that. I think I was the second American there in six years in 72. And I stayed in a little hotel where if you put the tap on in the morning by, by the evening, you got <laughs> about two inches of green water to take wow. a bath, you know, but, but now I, last time I was there, that hotel is now a five-star fancy hotel. And if you walked to the left one day, you still got to the old city where people, the mamas and daddies cooked, you know, had, they lived, they had open, everything's open in Asia. There's doesn't get that cold. And they, the, they were served through three people at a time outside, right on the little benches. Yeah. So they were making a living that way. If you walked the other way, you ran into a Rolls Royce Bentley shop, three blocks wow. away, Chinese capitalist communism style has taken over so and and guess who the best trading partner well you, i'll give you the obviously I, I gave it away we are the best trading partner right now with south south uh, vietnam but what i was saying is the uh, uh in cambodia cambodia the head camp of fang yang or no uh, anyway phnom penh uh, fell about two weeks after saigon fell and Vientiane and laos fell to the commies so they were always on the edge and so we were fighting a containment war. You know, we contained China, but all of South Asia we lost. And so, oh my God, we've lost South Asia. What was the cost? Nothing. Yeah. Then you say to yourself, all the whole post-war American experience with the Brits and other Western countries was containing communism, containing Russia. Well, maybe, you know, maybe we're just wrong about how far they, their tentacles spread. They certainly didn't spread to South Asia, although we were convinced they did. And so, and so, you know. Yeah, it was always sort of um, a, a, a tough pill to swallow. Um, Kissinger and, and his, that's what I was going to ask you. Who's the Kissinger now? Because it feels like the role of, of, of someone like a Henry Kissinger back in the 70s is now basically the intelligence agency community. Like they, they are basically dictating towards the White House rather than the opposite. Is that is that a fair well, assessment, you think? No, I think the White House and this White House is still dominant. Kissinger's, I wrote a long book about Kissinger in mm. 1983, The Price of Power was called. Um, won a lot of prizes and uh, 700 pages. I had seven or eight pages on Ostpolitik, which is the, you know, after World War II, Germany. Willy Brandt was the chancellor. At one point, he, Willy Brandt took over in, in late 60s, early 70s. And his message to the West of Europe is, okay, I know we spent 10, 12, 15 years destroying your countries and raping and massacring your citizens, right? You know, if particularly French hated them, France. But I'm going to be a good neighbor. I'm going to be an industrial powerhouse. I'm going to trade with you. I'm going to make money for all of us using Russian gas cheaply. I'm going to do it all. It's going to be a great time for. And he, he did get, he did get Europe to agree to let Germany into NATO, 
Mm. And so there was a lot of things happening. And, and one of the good things we did after World War II is we turned, we made war-torn Western Europe into a, a, a group of pretty, you know, democratic countries, pluralistic countries. Um, and now uh, that relied on us for energy, relied on us for support, we traded with us. And after all these years of total reliance on us and respect for us and supporting NATO, whether they wanted to or not, they're suddenly told by the president when he takes out the, the, their, their energy, the pipelines, he destroyed the pipelines to keep Germany from going soft on Ukraine. That's why he did it. Hmm. And that is, I can tell you, in, your, in Germany and places like that, that is not going to stand well. When you when you explained how the um, how how the how the uh, bombing took place, um, th there was a bunch of things that stuck out. I know you only have about six minutes left, so I just want to see if I can get through this. I, the, I got somebody calling me. Hold on a second. I got okay, my sure. wife staring at me. I got my wife staring at me already. You got to you got to you got to do what the wife says. Do you want me to let you go now, oh, Seymour? Oh, hang on. Let me tell you something. <laughs> you have how old are you? Forty six. Oh. You'll you'll be wiser. Uh, every 10 years. <laughs> about yeah, all of I it. bet I will. I hope I'm wiser in 10 years than I am now because I'm still living right. with my... Well, we're, pretty, we're, yeah. pretty, we're pretty stupid when we were younger, weren't we, in terms of family life and marriage. To mean, you, I'm probably still stupid, I would imagine. It's yeah. funny because I just noticed now that the government doesn't ever want you to talk and your initials say, shh. So... Oh, come on. No, <laughs> that's SMH. My middle initial. Oh, right. All right, oh, okay. ask you that question. Let's go. Um, the next question was um, about the the, the actual um, way that the Nord Stream uh, the Nord Stream pipeline was bombed, the the, the role of Norway. So they so they they took it away from the CIA because there would be too much oversight. They gave it to the military where they could be more covert. And then no, you said not, that not is right. that the opposite? They Sorry, put go it ahead. In a secret black unit that included CIA. Okay. You needed the pros in there, and you know, much as I have problems with the CIA, I got to tell you. The operation they ran was terrific. They did the pipeline. They did it. And it was almost impossible to do it without getting caught. And they did it without getting caught. They planted the bombs. And the president later had the option of using it. At that point, the guys doing it didn't think he would ever do it because they, they, they went into the job with the idea of creating an option for the president to make a threat to Putin to keep him from going into, into Ukraine. But Putin didn't care. He went. He was going to go. And so, meanwhile, they're continuing to, to screw around with the op. But guys are going back and forth from Norway. That's where the base was. But, you know, the need for it diminished once he goes in. But then he, um, um, they did fix up a me mechanism for under the water where he could trigger a bomb at any time. They did do it. They were ordered to do it. But when he did it, they were really, people on the, people on the mission were upset because... He's walking away from NATO, walking away from Western Europe. And by this time, I can tell you, by late fall, he did that in late September last year. The smart guys, don't, you didn't read it in the Times and Post because they were living off the propaganda from the White House. It was over. You know, it's over. The corruption there in Ukraine, Zelensky and his minions, the corruption is horrible. They can't win the war. The casualties were always much higher. The Russians have yet to put any of their mainline forces in. They have yet to put their regular army in. It's all been, you know, gangs. They bring out of jail that they, you know, enforced into something called the Wagner Group, and uh, um, and uh, reservists that were called up. Remember the call up? Yeah. What of this? 
how, how happy we were when Putin called up reservists and you to find out that one third of them didn't want to go and fled. And that their was families a, didn't even know that a war was happening sometimes. Well, it's, it's just that the idea that, oh, my God, so much dissension. But I happened to be alive when we started the draft for the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And thousands were burning their past, past their draft cards. Other guys just split to Russia, to uh, Europe, uh, to uh, mostly they split to Canada, but many went yeah. to the United States. And yeah, we have a whole bunch of, uh, we have like, uh, I live in this little area where there's a famous uh, commune that was built by American draft dodgers or conscientious and, objectors. And then, don't forget, a lot of guys walked away from the war and went to, went to Sweden and Norway. Yeah. I'll tell you something, in World War II, for all the heroics we had, an awful lot of the B-17 planes that were losing, we were losing 10% on every mission. A lot of them took off and thought about it and agreed with the co-pilot and they, they cut off. They were in, in taking off from northern, northern, uh, above London, not, not central London, on uh, a big airbase where the B-17s were. Over a hundred of them just announced that they had engine trouble and flew to Sweden and left the cars. There. Wow! We came after the war and collected them. It's one of the great secrets of the war. You know, people aren't aren't always willing to die. Yeah. Uh, uh, in World War II, there was some reason that was the last good war. But you know, we're a country that did Vietnam and. We did. Don't you remember Grenada? Remember yeah. Remember the of Grenada, the island where we were going to rescue students, and the first thing that happened is the students met them. That's right. Said, you know, you, what do you guys want for lunch? <laughs> yeah. Um, I know you got to go. The last thing I wanted to say was um, the Norway role in this. They were the, they were responsible for the detonation, and since then you said that their oil and gas export have more than doubled? No. No, I was wrong about that. The, oh. the price, I, I was imprecise. The money they get from the gas has doubled because they've raised the prices with the Nord Stream going, but it's only grown up. The money they collect for, you know, for whatever the measure of it is, is much higher. And the money collected has grown, but the actual amount of gas they could pour into uh, Germany has only grown by 3% or 4%, okay. maybe a little more. But okay. the money, they only were, they supplied about 6 7% anyway. Uh, so it has a, you know, it's not doubled. But um, the, the point is that, uh, um, but they didn't do it for economic reasons. Uh, uh, I'm writing more about Norway because there's a lot more to write about. Okay. And I'm doing that, I guess. So. Well, I hope that I can have you back at that time as well. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I also really enjoyed um, the quote from your friend in France who said that you have become a master at deconstruction of the obvious. Um, for An some... old oil man. He read the story and he said, wonderful, old, brilliant oil man made a lot of money. Which you deserve, well, but I, I just want to let you know that you can come back anytime because I trust you as a journalist. I read your book. I went to journalism school. I, I, I didn't make it as a journalist uh, in the legacy media, and I'm kind of happy I didn't. I do this now. And I think that um, I, I think you, uh, voices like yours are, are, are probably more important than ever. Um, you, and you I, living with this stuff. I never know about podcasts. Is it working financially? It is just just starting to now. It takes a while to build an audience. It took me a couple of years to build an audience, and I've been just at it. And now it's starting to uh, to, to make me some coin. You get ads. Is that how you do it? Um, right now we have ads as a collective for the network. So I belong to the biggest podcasting network in the country, which is called Cryer Media. So right now we're kind of co-oping our 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 will inflows. This, will you shift this piece to the, your your the big boys, or do you stick with this piece by yourself? How does it work? Do you have to give them a crack of the stuff you do? No, I don't. I, they just—I just, I just yeah, tell them what I'm doing, off. and they say, "Have fun." Okay, cool. 
Yeah. Whatever. So you can come back anytime you want. You can say anything you want, and I I will be here to uh, to broadcast you because I, I I again I don't think that legacy me legacy legacy media to me drops the ball when it comes to Cy Hirsch, and I think that that's uh, a rather it's rather a shame. You know. Don't worry for me. I'm okay. Big boy. Goodbye. Okay, good. Talk to you. Thanks, Seymour. Have a good one. Oh, oh, that was awesome. I love him so much. Um, he is uh, probably the um the journalist that I would say if I were to pick one um, is the one that, uh, that I would most likely want to em- emulate uh, as far as, uh, first of all, his sources are amazing. Um, and every time he breaks a new story, um, you get people like Ian Bremmer um, in the States, uh, all of the, the mainstream legacy media guys who talk about how he's a crackpot or he's a useful idiot uh, or something like that. But you know what never happens? You never see anybody um, put together uh, a contradictory story that ever turns out to be true. So even like when it comes to like the assassination of Osama bin Laden, the only main difference really between Cy Hirsch's account and what the White House says happened is that the Pakistanis knew that the operation was going to happen. That was it. The Pakistanis knew where he was um, and they gave the green light to the Navy SEALs that eventually went in and killed Osama the only that the only difference between that and the story that the White House put out is that the Americans violated Pakistani airspace and went in without them knowing and then took them in the cover of darkness. So it was all kind of uh, it, it was one of those stories that when it first came out we were like what and then you, you realize that it's really just a nuance difference. It was it was interesting, but he is not. I, I don't understand why why mainstream outlets would shun him unless um, of course. Um, you know, you're a mainstream outlet beholden to politics, which is what seems to be happening right now in New York, uh, in the New York Times and the Washington Post and places like that. But I, I hope you guys learned something because I certainly did. It's, you know, it, it's it's tough for, and I know the uh, mainstream reporters that I spoke to in the last few days in Canada about Cy Hirsch coming on the show, almost uniformly were like, oh, he's a useful idiot or he's a crackpot. I don't think he is. I think that we should respect someone like him and realize that what would possibly be the motivation um, for him to a manufacture a story um, or B, how does a guy like Cy Hirsch be, how can you use him as a useful idiot? It, it doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense, especially when Ian Bremmer um, right after he's saying that, uh, that, that Cy Hirsch is a crackpot goes on to just blame Ukraine. Oh, I think the Ukrainians did it. Well, was, where's your evidence? You know, at least Cy Hirsch can give you a, an anatomy of the operation, um, how it started, who's involved, how the bombs were detonated, when the bombs were planted, and, um, you know, and the motivation for doing so. And let's not forget that Joe Biden literally went on television and said, I will stop the Nord Stream pipeline. So um, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. It's a black ball doubleheader tonight, by the way, or today, as tonight I will have a man named Michael McKay on the show. Michael McKay is a veteran of what he calls Ukraine Democratic and Civil Society Renaissance. He's also an election observer out of Ukraine. I think right now, though, he's in Ottawa. And we're going to talk to him about the uh, the controversy. I wouldn't call it controversy. If, 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 if true, it's one of the most discussed stories to come out of Russia, um, which would be the, uh, the claim that Russia is basically kidnapping children and then putting them in their adoption system, um, which I find to be uh, rather gross. So we're going to talk about that uh, with Michael McKay at 8 o'clock tonight. 
And until then, we'll see you next time on Black Ball. Black Ball. Black, black, black ball. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, undercurrent podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon.